It's the DEH Podcast, episode number 138. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And, and, and who did you say you were again? <laughs> I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. It seems like it's been forever. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's summer, you know, we both have uh, plans making up for lost time from 2020, Things I think. Going on. Yeah, I felt guilty enough last week that um, I didn't want our listener to think that we had abandoned him. <laughs> so <laughs> just let you know that, yeah, we're still around. We're not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I was thinking about it earlier today, the number of podcasts that um, I've paid attention to at one point or another, or at least known about that have simply silently stopped without yep. warning, without anything. I didn't want to be one of those. No. So um, if we ever do decide to bring this sucker to a close, uh, we'll certainly let you know. Now, yeah. with that in mind, uh, you know, we're here today. It is the, uh, what is this, the third week in July, mm -hmm. and we will not be recording again for another, well, it'll be three weeks, actually, since you'll be out for a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's summer, you know, so just checking in when we can. And so it uh, happens, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very cool. Exactly. So uh, what were you doing the past couple of weeks? Tell me what you did on your summer vacation. Uh, well, first part, uh, really, I've got some more travels coming up, but uh, went to Ocean City, New Jersey. Um, which, of course, I'm sure everybody recognizes as a, as a world-renowned summer resort, kind of similar to the French Riviera. Um, no. <laughs> only Jersey. <laughs> no, it's only it's just it's Jersey and there's not even they don't even allow alcohol to dry town. Uh, wow. But it is uh, probably uh, the nicest uh, boardwalk and beach um, on the Jersey Shore. I think so. That will make some people very angry saying that. Uh, but you know, I, I think it is. It's a beautiful, it's like a three mile long boardwalk with like candy stores and ice cream shops and, uh, you know, places like that. Uh, and also uh, beaches that are not, uh, you know, too long to walk and but they're nice and waves are nice and all well, you're that. You're originally we, from that area, right? I'm from Philly. Okay. So I grew up going down the shore to Atlantic City. That was growing up. And then Atlantic City, uh, changed. <laughs> they, uh, you know, legalized gambling and Atlantic City went from a boardwalk very much like that, you know, the, the Ocean City thing today to basically these huge casino hotels and a much more adult atmosphere. Las Vegas um, of the East. Yeah. So at, at that point, you know, I was getting, a, I was getting a little old, but my family was moving, you know, towards going to Ocean City, New Jersey, rather than Atlantic City. I think a lot of people made that change. And I've continued to do that as an adult, uh, raising my daughter. We've made trips out there to meet up with the rest of the family and spend a week every summer in Ocean City, New Jersey. It's always, always nice. I always like, enjoy swimming there. I enjoy getting up early and bike riding on the boardwalk and, and you know, walking the boards. And Oh, and another thing about Ocean City, New Jersey, if you've ever been there, you know this. I mean, miniature golf, there are so many. There's got to be, I think, 15 or 20. <laughs> miniature golf courses either on the boardwalk or some of them just off the boardwalk so uh that always gives you something to do you know you don't need to be like oh we're gonna walk the boardwalk and what look at the same ice cream place and candy shop that we did last night it's like no we'll try another miniature golf course and you know compete against each other and see who who wins tonight and then get yourself some ice cream and all of that sure. so uh so yeah so that's what i was doing and I know you were traveling as well. I was. I, I got in the Tesla and I drove to Colorado, <laughs> which <laughs> the uh, other is, part of Colorado. Yeah. Is, yes. The, yes. The other side of Colorado from you, the, uh, the me, west yeah. side of the mountains. Um, I went and visited Randy, our friend Randy in, uh, in uh, Ridgeway, Colorado. And uh, it's a two day drive, which it's a really nice two day drive. Uh, so that's basically, I've done it before. Although this was the first time I did it in the Tesla all the way to, uh, to Colorado. And it was a lot of fun. I enjoy, I enjoy just getting on the road and, and listening to podcasts or listening to audiobooks and uh, just sort of looking out the window as I'm driving and just sort of enjoying the, uh, the scenery along the way. Unfortunately, uh, as has happened on a prior trip, uh, I get to the midway point for me is Twin Falls, Idaho. And of course I get there and it's 103, mm. which is, you know, these, the, the record setting weather that we had in Seattle, like a two or three weeks ago that I was hoping never to have to experience again. 
So we had that along the way. On the way down, I decided to play a little bit with TikTok. So I've actually got a series of little TikTok videos that I did at each of my rest stops along the way, just sort of talking a little bit about tech. It seems to be, in my experience with TikTok, with what I've looked at at TikTok, uh, there's a, it's apparently an okay thing to do to make your TikToks from the driver's seat of your car. That's very popular. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's what I did. I'm still annoyed as heck that there's no easy way to mirror it so that things come out right. Mm. I think that that's one of the, uh, one of the TikToks I made. It says, if you can read this, it's because I used a different recording app, but, uh, but nonetheless, it was kind of fun. I also used it to document my experience with uh, a LastPass problem that I had when I was in the hotel. I tried to log into LastPass and couldn't. Mm-hmm. It said, oh, you're, you're somewhere else. Let's throw you some extra security. And they sent me an email that I never got. So that involved a little bit of, of not panic because I certainly have everything covered about three or four different ways, but um, perhaps mild frustration. And I decided to, uh, to talk a little bit about that and uh, eventually it's, it's, there's an Ask Leo article coming up, if not this next week, the week after, that documents exactly what happened with my LastPass account and what uh, steps were taken to get it back, so to speak, and why it was never really a problem in the first place. So that'll be an interesting little side effect of the, uh, of yeah. the trip, which I guess let's we call it a business trip and write it all off. <laughs> I uh, did watch your I did watch your series of TikToks about LastPass uh, as as the saga was ongoing, uh-huh. and it did it did make me think. Well, you know, if um, LastPass is going to err to one side or the other, better for it to give you less access to your passwords than to actually provide more access to the to your passwords. Yeah, that's actually a very you know. interesting topic that. I try to explain to people whenever some service is preventing them from signing in because of additional security requirements. I said, well, you know, we could make the security weaker and then anybody could get in. And that's not what you want either. But of course, if you are faced with a situation where you can't get into your account, none of that means anything to you. You can't get into your account no matter what the security is. And that just seems wrong to a lot of people. So, but, uh, but like I said, it wasn't an issue for me and uh, certainly it got resolved along the way. Had a very nice time in Colorado. Uh, just basically sat back, relaxed a lot. Um, enjoyed the, uh, the very, very different landscape and scenery that they have out there. Mm. And, uh, you know, went to uh, a few places, uh, you know, ate too well, too much, but, uh, but overall had a really nice time and then got back in the car and Spent two days driving home, <laughs> same, yeah. same story on the way back. So um, the thing I noticed on the way back was that the skies were extremely smoky yes. for yeah. most of the trip. In fact, I'll even say until I crested the Cascades, which are the mountains here in Washington, um, the sky was very clearly smoky the entire time. And in some cases, so uh, smoky that you couldn't really see like the foothills or the mountains in the distance. So there's definitely a lot of fires going on right now that had started by, by the time I left. Yeah. I actually went up. That that reminds me. I, one of the things I did uh, while you were driving around is I went to the baseball all-star game, Uh which of course was here in Denver, Colorado, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of a surprise visit of the all-star game here. Um, And it was, you know, could we have beautiful sunsets in our baseball games? You know, because the 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 stadium is built in such a way that if you sit on the first base side, you've got the scoreboard. You may even think the scoreboard's a little bit too far to the right until you see the sunset and you realize, oh, it's perfectly positioned for the sun <laughs> to set right there. And and it would have been beautiful, except the smoke. Uh, so we the smoke was building up, and uh, during both the home run derby on the Monday night and then the All Star game where I was there sitting first base side so I could see the sunset. Um, it was all smoky. We got a little bit of a sunset, but it was nowhere near as nice as it could have been because of that smoke. Sometimes smoke gives you beautiful sunsets um, if it's just right. But uh, in this case, no, it just really obscured the sun and added a lot of, a lot of layers of atmosphere between you and the sun. The, so. um, the morning I left, because uh, of course, on setting out for a 1,200-mile journey, you leave early in the morning. Yep. Uh, I actually ended up having to stop 
in, uh, in the driveway and grab my camera because of the sunrise. Uh, it was set, uh, coming up over some of the mountains there and uh, it was very smoky, but it was this beautiful red orb in the middle of all that smoke. Yeah. And uh, I've got a picture of that somewhere. I'll see if I can't link to it in the show notes. Uh, but it was actually quite stunning. And like I said, one of those things where, okay, I got to pull over and, and grab the camera. Yeah, I take uh, sunrise pictures when I'm on my trips. And Ocean City is one of those places where you can actually see the sun rise over the ocean. Right. Um, it's just barely over the ocean because even though you feel like you're kind of, uh, you know, the beach goes north to south, it doesn't. <laughs> it actually goes almost completely uh, east to west, which ah, is weird when you think, yeah. hey, I'm, but I'm on the east coast. It should be, you know. Right. But so the sun rises over the ocean, but you could get, you know, the, you basically get the beach as a line going towards the sun right. and you got to get up early. It's a 5 30 AM sunrise, uh, you know, during, at the end of June, beginning of July right. um, to see it, but you're not the only one there at the beach. A lot of uh, people getting their Instagram shots <laughs> with their selfie sticks or, um, oh, Lord. you know, yeah, whatever going on. So it's kind of a, yeah, kind of interesting. The tourists are the ones with the selfie sticks for sure. Well, I mean, it's oh, it's a tourist town, so it's yeah. only that it's only tourists. But it is interesting to see people. You know, I I've got kind of a jacket on, and you know, it's it's early in the morning, so it's chilly. It's like maybe sixty eight degrees or something out. You know, you're right on the water. Um, but you know, of course, the Instagram shots have to be done in a full bikini <laughs> with the sun. <laughs> yeah. You know, so they, they, yeah. I didn't yeah. know you wore a bikini there. Did yeah. You? Oh yeah. <laughs> so you throw off the sweatpants and all that stuff, take your quick Instagram shots, and then throw all that stuff back on. It's fun seeing them, uh, the kids trying to get their, their pictures like that. Another thing I noticed while traveling, I don't know if you, uh, you know, came across this, but I saw several uh, restaurants and other types of stores that were closed. And, you know, I'm looking for like how have things changed in two years, right? Uh, well, first, it doesn't look like much change, especially at a place like Ocean City, New Jersey. Uh, if you saw a mask, it was unusual. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sh maybe last year, last summer, there was more masks. But, you know, I'm not saying if I looked hard, I couldn't have found somebody with a mask, but there weren't that many masks. That was my and, observation as well, all the way through uh, yeah. Oregon, Idaho, Utah, Colorado. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's like, uh, you're outdoors a lot and things like that, but there certainly wasn't much social distancing. Um, there were a lot of restaurants that had never had outside tables that suddenly did have outside tables. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you could have actually, if you didn't know, you wouldn't have noticed that, you know, you would have just been like, well, of course there are outside tables. And it's like, Oh, you know, typically there aren't that many, mm -hmm. but, uh, but one thing I did notice is places, uh, there were several places that were closed or had reduced hours because they couldn't get enough employees. Right. So yeah, I, was, I didn't see many places actually closed. Um, yeah. But I definitely noticed and experienced both, you know, all the help wanted ads, right? There are lots, yeah. of, lots of jobs available. Uh, and what I'll just refer to as slow service because the staff that mm. was there was working so incredibly hard to try and keep up because they were just short staffed. They didn't have. Yeah. To yeah. And I, I don't know. There's a whole variety. There isn't one single reason why that's happening. Correct. There's a whole variety all tied to the pandemic. Yes. Um, but there are um, there's a whole variety of reasons. And the dad one to that Ocean City, New Jersey, is one of those places that usually imports kids for the summer from Europe. So it's common to at a hotel, say, or a restaurant actually have name tags uh, for the employees and it has their country name underneath. And they're part oh, cool. of some program where, you know, they sign up and, uh, you know, they get their ticket, I guess, paid for to come over and they have to work five days a week and they get two days off and they get to experience the United States for a summer. Cool. Um, but of course, that's not happening yeah, right that, now. That happen, <laughs> so yeah. that also uh, hurt a lot in a place like that. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, definitely the pandemic is is both the cause and I'll just say a triggering event for some of the other potential causes that that are leading up to this. It will be interesting to see how it all shakes out. I mean, we've spoken about it before that you and I both have been going out of our way to try and make sure that the restaurants we care about um, yeah. are still here after the pandemic. And so far, at least over here, the news is pretty good. The restaurants that uh, we've been frequenting 
seem to be coming out of everything in pretty good shape, albeit still a little understaffed. Um, mm -hmm. You know, obviously, I don't know what the books are like. For all I know, they're you know tens of thousands of dollars in debt, but but they're still here, right? These these aren't places that have closed down. Um, so that's encouraging. But yeah, it's it's a problem all you know all around uh, across the country. I'm sure where. Uh, uh, you know, good help, as they say, is, it's always hard to find, and especially, especially now. Indeed. Indeed. So, so anyway, yeah, it was good to just sort of step away from everything. I did the the minimum, you know, I needed to do to to keep the uh, the Ask Leo machine running. Um, fortunately, I have wonderful, wonderful assistants. Um, you know, Connie, our editor, being one of them, and uh, um, Mark and Andrea and my editor, Mary Beth you know, all basically just sort of magically doing their thing in the background while Leo's off playing. And <laughs> it's, uh, it's almost like it was working to plan. Yep. So it was very cool. So speaking of travel. Yeah. I, uh, a, a big story that's happened in the last few weeks is not one, but two billionaires went to space and they both uh, came back. Darn it. And they, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, the, the question is, uh, did they really go to space? Um, because they, both of these flights, even though they were very different technology, oh, yeah. they had something in common in which they were not orbital flights. They were basically up and back down right. very quickly. And, you know, uh, Richard Branson's uh, Virgin Galactic craft was actually, you know, uh, launched from a plane. You know, mm -hmm. so the plane brought it up to, I think, about eight or 10 miles or something. I was going to say, and, I think it's like 50, 45,000 feet, something like that. Yeah. And, and then it drops the, the, the spacecraft part, which then has a rocket that then, you know, it takes off from there. But the uh, Blue Origin, uh, New Shepard spacecraft carrying Jeff Bezos, that's more traditional rocket. If you can call it that, you know, it takes off like a rocket, like SpaceX and NASA and everything. Uh, but both of those, basically went up past a line that <laughs> denotes space and then came right back down, making it very similar to uh, the United States first, uh, you know, man in space. You know, when Alan Shepard went up, that was the same kind of thing, a suborbital flight, mm -hmm. um, putting that, that Mercury craft into space. Uh, and so I got really, I went into a dive because I was really curious about this kind of thing. So first as reference, airplanes, travel between six and eight miles. I'm going to use miles as my measurement here. I'm sure everybody can convert to their unit of, of uh, preference. But so when you're flying, if you're going to fly, you're somewhere between six and eight miles up. And, um, but where is space? So NASA and the FAA actually define it as starting at 50 miles, but they're not the only game in town when it comes to the findings when space starts, there's actually uh, an Air Sports Federation, which is an international body that defines it as 62 miles. And the distinction is very important because when Richard Branson went up, he went to 53 miles in his spacecraft and claimed he's in space. And according to NASA, he was very briefly. Of course, he was up and then came right back down. So it was only up there for a few minutes. Blue Origin and uh, Jeff Bezos, of course, were really happy uh, about the uh, uh, fact that they only went 53 miles because Blue Origin went 66 and a half miles. Right. So that means that the uh, they could say, well, you know, because the Air Sports Federation says it's 62 miles, that uh, Rich Branson didn't actually go to space, but we did. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's that. And then we've got uh, other measurements we could look at because, okay, so 50 miles or 50, uh, let's see, Branson was 53, Blue Origin was 66 miles. So Alan Shepard actually in the first Mercury mission went up to 116 miles. Mm -hmm. So way back in the early 60s, our rockets were doing a little bit better than what we've gotten, you know, these but two that rockets. that too was a, an up and back. That, that, that was, was up just, and back. Yeah. And then I was I was curious because I for some reason had into my head that Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space uh, for the Soviet Union, that he also did an up and back uh, in suborbital flight, mm -hmm. and that it was the next flight that went orbital. But no, Yuri Gagarin not only went up in space first, but he did a full orbit. I didn't realize that. Yeah, 
So that's why I was, I was like, when was the first orbital, you know, Soviet flight? And it was the same one. Yeah. He did a single orbit and he actually reached an altitude of 203 miles. Um, and it wasn't until uh, the third Mercury mission when we uh, in the United States got John Glenn around uh, for a few orbits, I think, at mm -hmm. 162 miles as his maximum. Now, all that stuff, small potatoes, when you start looking at things like the International Space Station is 254. So we've had humans for, what, 20 years now orbiting the Earth at 254 miles approximately. Right. Um, and that's a, an interesting line because most manned missions like space shuttle missions from a while ago or the uh you know the soviet missions and their craft to go up they've just been delivering to the iss right so 254 is like kind of the line you have to reach which of course spacex reached several times on both uh unmanned and manned missions mm -hmm. to deliver people to the iss so where you know bezos and branson are both okay we our you know space programs have gotten into space SpaceX is still way ahead of them mm -hmm. because they're actually putting spacecraft in orbit, which is, you think, well, what's the difference? You just get up there and you get up there and you go around the earth. There's a huge difference because in order to orbit, you've got to be traveling at a speed fast enough so you don't fall back down. <laughs> so your velocity going as a tangent to your the orbit has to be really fast. And what I, the way I like to think about it, the, the way it's been described to me, is that it's not that you're trying to avoid falling. Yeah. You are falling. By definition, yeah. in orbit, you are falling. You're just moving forward at enough of a rate that you're always falling just ahead of where you would hit the ground. Exactly. You're always missing the Earth. Exactly. Constantly missing the Earth. That's all an orbit is. Um, the ISS uh, orbit you know, is, is good enough that it could basically stay up there with just a few orbital adjustments per year, right? So it does need some fuel and all, but it pretty much, mo it, on normal days, it's just basically, you could think of it inaccurately as floating there. It's not, it's moving very fast. As a matter of fact, it orbits the earth every 93 minutes, mm -hmm. <laughs> which if you think about it, I mean, to go completely around the earth in 93 minutes, that's fast. To go from LA to New York is what, four and a half hours, five right. hours? <laughs> So imagine the entire earth every hour and a half, you're going really fast. You, that speed doesn't just come because you're in orbit. You actually have to accelerate to that. So when say a SpaceX rocket, that's going to go and dock with the space station um, that goes up, it not only has to go up and get up to that altitude, but it also has to get that velocity going around the earth, which is no small feat, it takes a lot of fuel and time to do that so there's a big difference still between what but you know blue origin and uh virgin galactic are doing and what spacex is doing and what nasa has been doing for a long long time um some other uh things here you know hubble is even higher than the iss and that's 340 miles and of course uh i the shuttle had visited hubble i believe i was i don't know it's possible that um, they brought Hubble closer for maintenance. Oh, yeah, interesting. I, I, I honestly don't know if they that. did that or not. Yeah, but Hubble's up higher. Yep. Um, low Earth orbit actually extends all the way up to 1,200 miles. Which so I was, to be honest, shocked wasn't in your original list. I mean, how could you not have Leo? Well, Leo is actually, all, you know, the ISS is in Leo. It's so, a range. Here's, yeah, it, basically, it's everything under 1,200 miles um, is considered to be a low Earth orbit. The interesting fact that I grabbed from the Wikipedia article, which I will include a link to, mm -hmm. is that um, humans have not been outside of low Earth orbit since the last moon mission. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's been no reason to go. Um, you know, we, we, the only destination we've we've targeted outside of low Earth orbit has been the moon. Right. And we've and only done a few of those. May end up going outside of it again sometime within the next, I don't know, decade or two, but um, hopefully, yeah, hopefully, but um, it's an interesting thing to think about. Well, yeah. And, and the, you know, the numbers get really crazy because the numbers seem to be bunched up. Okay. you got, you got 53 miles is where Branson was mm -hmm. and you got the ISS at 254 miles, right? So five times the distance, but if you think of geostationary satellites, right. 
like the very one I get my television from, right? <laughs> you know, or the ones that actually, you know, radio signals are bounced around all the time from, we use sure. all the time. Yep. Those are, so those have to be high enough because to make the circle big enough so that the orbit actually takes 24 hours or technically 23 hours and 56 minutes because the earth actually rotates every 23 hours and 56 minutes, not every 24 hours. I'll leave it up to an exercise for the listener to uh, <laughs> figure out why that is, but uh, it's really fascinating. Uh, but the, um, but yeah, so you have to expand that circle so much to go from 93 minutes to 24 hours right. and geostationary orbits 22,000 miles. So those satellites that are just like we're using, like, like normal everyday people, like you and me, you're using for things uh, are actually that much further away than where, you know, the space station and Branson and Bezos and everybody are. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, so, I mean, it is harder The the first miles, the hardest, right. And each mile gets easier and easier. Right. So when you have something like blue origin goes 66 miles up, um, it does solve the biggest part of the problem, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you so know. when I take a look at Blue Origin and um, uh, Virgin Galactic, right now they're both touting uh, uh, space travel. Yeah. They're, they're supposedly selling seats, mm -hmm. which, you know, that's fine and all that. My position is that if I'm going to spend that much money, uh, you know, orbit or it didn't happen, right? I don't, I just don't want to just want to go up and down. I want to go up and around at least once or twice before I come back down. So until they offer that, I'm probably not going to be ponying over. I, you know, I found, I found, so I didn't, I didn't watch the Bezos uh, one because it was before I woke up. Right. Um, Same just here. Barely. I just watched it a few minutes ago before recording. Yeah. I, I did watch the uh, Virgin Galactic one because yes. it was perfectly timed for me to be eat, drinking my coffee in the morning. Um, and one of the things that really got me was it was like, okay, watching it. Okay. Oh, they're finally launching from the, from the uh, plane and they're up and they're down and they landed. What? They, <laughs> did, that was like 15 minutes. Yep. And then I thought, you know, I think I'll save my yeah. $200,000 <laughs> or whatever it costs. Right. Um, that just didn't, you know, and, and actually I didn't notice, I, didn't, I don't know why, but I did notice their stock dropped a lot. And I, and I theorized that I think their stock dropped a lot because a lot of people that were like, Oh, I'm so paying for this. Oh, I'm so wait, that was it. 15 minutes. No, <laughs> I'm going to this way to maybe I'll, I want to do an orbit or something. I don't know. Now, what but, I find interesting though, is that blue origin clearly has their sights set on things like the space station. Right? Yeah. With, yeah. They're with a traditional yeah. rocket and a traditional um, mm -hmm. capsule kind of configuration, they're set up to send people or cargo or whatever to the space station or do other uh, low earth orbit kind of things. Virgin Galactic, I'm just not sure where they go from here in terms of you know what's next. Is it all about tourism, space tourism, or mm. is there more to it? Somebody theorized and actually your comment earlier about um, you know New York to LA in four and a half hours, somebody theorized that the technology that Virgin Galactic is using could in theory be used for uh, what boils down to a space flight, a temporary space flight across the planet, right? So rather than taking off and landing at the same place, you take off in Texas and you land in, I don't know, China or yeah. you know, the Far East or, yeah, yeah. or the other side of the country, right? And you just do it in that 15 minutes rather than it being four and a half hours. Well, that, that would be good. I mean, I always thought that the whole idea was that Virgin Galactic was definitely about tourism and that eventually they did want it to go higher and perhaps even have their own space station where there would be, you know, right. a, uh, you know, hotel. A Virgin Galactic know, hotel. or Like, hotel. like yeah. 2000 in 2001, a space odyssey. Yes. Um, that I, I think that's, his general idea. Whereas, yeah, like you said, Blue Origin, they're, they're, they're looking to be a serious competitor to SpaceX. Now, what I find interesting also about Blue Origin is that their rocket is so different than the traditional rockets we've been seeing. I mean, even when you take a look at SpaceX, it's mm -hmm. like multi-engine, it's got the same red flame, lots of smoke, um, there's multiple stages, all that kind of stuff. 
blue orange looks mm -hmm. like a can with a blue flame at the bottom. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, it looks wonderful. I like the look of the thing. It just amazes me that they're doing this using that kind of configuration. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely different. And of course, it has those big windows, which is, you know, yes. different than. Uh, so it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see. I, I, I really like the idea. You know, I, I see it as, a, as somebody who's an enthusiast in this kind of thing. I see it as Virgin Galactic is kind of a, a little bit of a sideshow now. And it's really I'm hoping Blue Origin becomes a more serious competitor to SpaceX mm -hmm. so that there's this c competition between them. And of course, we still have all the, you know, they're not the only, there's United Launch Alliance, right. which is kind of like, you know, it's more like NASA. It's, I mean, they're really tied to it. And, and right. then you have Russia and you've got China, you've got other countries looking to enter into it too. So, you know, I want to see the competition and I want to have it, these companies pushing each other. Um, that's why also another big thing that's happened in the last few weeks is uh, the International Space Station is no longer the only space station. Yes. <laughs> yes, which has not been getting a lot of news in the U.S. press for some reason. Imagine that. I, it, it, well, it, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's China's accomplishments in space, of course, are colored by the politics. Of course. You know, so, you know, but if you look at it from a purely scientific standpoint, mm -hmm. or even if you want to say, let's look at it from a purely capitalistic standpoint, that competition is good, Right. right. And that the, the original space race in the 60s is what got us to the moon, a, a task, you know, or a goal we still haven't, you know, quite gotten to yet. And in some ways, in other ways, we've surpassed it. But, you know, having, you know, China have a space station up there and them having their sights set, I, I really believe that they're going to try to land somebody on the moon in the next few years. Um, you know, it, it's good because then perhaps we'll you know, be more ambitious. Uh, we as a country, but also maybe either the private companies that are American companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX. I do agree that, I, I mean, I, I find it fascinating. I find it really encouraging that um, this has shifted to private enterprise mm -hmm. rather than being solely reliant on the US government, because obviously the willingness to support this kind of stuff by the government has kind of faded over the course of the last few decades. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, the counter argument is that we should be spending all this money on issues closer to Earth. And while there's certainly a lot that can be said about whether or not, for example, Amazon should be paying their people better, spending some of that money on certain things. The bottom line is that, well, there's a couple of bottom lines. One is that both Blue Origin and uh, Virgin Galactic and SpaceX, uh, they're spending a lot of money that is driving certain sectors of the economy. They're employing a lot of people. And there's, as much as people don't like to hear the phrase trickle down, that mm -hmm. does trickle down, right? These are people that are then who are able to, you know, buy houses and go shopping and that kind of stuff. But the other thing that often gets um, mentioned when people start to disparage some of the space race, even in the 60s, and certainly the space race that we're kind of encountering now, are the number of things that basically end up impacting our daily lives as a side effect of mm -hmm. all of this stuff that's being invented and designed and experimented with and created that wouldn't have been created had this stuff not happened. Um, there's a lot of different things that you and I use every day that probably would not exist were it not for the space race back in the 60s. Oh, yeah. And I think the same thing is very, very true today. It's just incredibly difficult to, um, you know, to measure the impact in, say, 10 years, looking at what's going on today. So, uh, but I do, I, I do very much like the fact that it has turned into less of a government run operation and more of a commercial competition. Cause I think that that's where, um, you know, a lot of interesting decisions can, uh, can be made. Right. Funny, I finally heard somebody mention it. Um, I think it was David Gerald, um, who is, he's a writer. He wrote a couple of uh, Star Trek episodes and he's, uh, that's what he's best known for. Um, but he's, you know, popular on Twitter and he's also very 
space enthusiastic. Um, mm-hmm. And he actually mentioned Heinlein's book, uh, The Man Who Sold the Moon, I think it's called. Mm. And that details uh, someone that I, when I read it, uh, you know, by the time I read it, the moon, our moon landing had already happened. So it invalidated the storyline. The storyline was how the moon was be originally uh, landed on, how people would originally get to the moon. And it was a private enterprise by someone who now looking at today's landscape looks an awful lot like Elon Musk. So we, <laughs> the story is well worth rereading, but it is also a very interesting scenario that, yeah, our commercial enterprises, the people that are doing the the entrepreneurial things are the things that are now starting to move us forward. Well, certainly I think somebody like Musk is a somebody who's more of a leader than a than in the past we've had companies that are following the government, you know, right. the, so it has to be NASA that says, we're going to do this. And the companies say, you tell us what you need, we'll do it. Whereas Musk is, I mean, they're, they're certainly doing that. They're doing government contracts, but they're you know, he, he also wants to do things. And I'm pretty sure Bezos probably is the same. Yep. And, uh, you know, so it, it, it very well may be, maybe it should be that, uh, you know, as China's ambitions continue to expand, it's, you know, the private companies that are then saying, no, if China is going to be on the moon again, America needs to be there. And, yep. and, and uh, you know, we need to move towards Mars. And, and, you know, hopefully during our lifetime, we get to see a space race to Mars. Um, it is interesting too how you know the other player is Russia, and of course the International Space Station really is more or less a U.S. Russian, you know, uh, it, um, I, you know the partnership. But you know you throw in the European Space Agency, Japan, Canada, you know a lot. It's International Space Station, but obviously the only two countries that have been able to launch things during the period of the International Space Station have been Russia and the U.S. and while the United States apparently doesn't even talk to China about things, Russia apparently does. So, because right. China has basically reached out and says, who wants to work with us on our space station? And we've been, from what I've read, we've been silent. Whereas Russia has said, oh, maybe. And then the interesting thing gets to be that, uh, you know, the rumor is that Russia may one day exit the International Space Station and instead partner with China. But you know what? Any of that stuff, to me, if it, if it makes the goals of, you know, pushing things forward in space, you know, that's good. Even if it's just a rumor that you know, Russia may want to partner with China and that gets the United States to spend more money and do more things, you know, I think it's, it's all good. Yep. Let's just, yep. let's I, just keep moving forward. Yeah. So there was one number on your list that I thought was interesting just to put things yeah. in perspective um, that we didn't talk about. We talked about geostationary orbit being at 22,000 miles. The moon orbits at 20, 238,000 miles. So it's yeah. 10 times the distance of a geostationary uh, satellite. Uh, and of course, it's doing it uh, once every 28 days or thereabouts. Yep. But And yeah, well, there was actually, did I put this on the list? Uh, the so. other thing? Oh, I forgot it. Yes, I forgot. To, I actually looked this up. There is one other item I tried to figure out. Um, so uh, where, where would SpaceX? It's not fair. We put Blue Origin on the list. We put Virgin Galactic on the list. Mm-hmm. What's Space Origin? Uh, what's SpaceX's record? And of course, I thought, oh, there is a record because they put Elon Musk's car. Yeah. <laughs> and that thing actually has is completed, I believe, more than two orbits of the sun, not the earth. So it's actually orbiting the sun. And at its most distant, I think it's been 90 million miles from so earth. I will include a link in the- uh, There's actually a website. Uh, where let's see is, if I can find it. Where is roadster.com? Yeah. Um, and it has a map of exactly where the roadster is at any point in time. Yep. And let's see. And it goes beyond Mars's orbit at one point. It, and has, it, it has done that. Yeah. Um, oh, come on. Give me today. There we go. Give me today. So today, uh, it is actually halfway between the Earth and Mars. Almost yeah. right in between us. Now, it's, you know, I mentioned before how the first mile is the hardest and then it gets easier and easier. <laughs> and the same thing is true in space. Um, going to the moon, you know, if you remember how the Apollo missions worked, of course, you know, the, the size of the rockets and amount of fuel uh, for actually getting out of Earth orbit and getting to the moon 
are tiny compared to what was needed on the ground just to lift off the first mile. Uh, because, you know, once you start to escape Earth's gravitational pull, then you, uh, you find it a lot easier. And remember, we were talking about the speed of going around the Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing is, is that, you know, you point that, that momentum in another direction and you can do some interesting things. So, you know, you're orbiting the Earth and maintaining that speed. But if instead you said, uh, okay, I'm going to actually go beyond Earth's orbit, um, then you can head towards the moon or out towards Mars or whatever. Uh, and it's actually, it's not the doing it that's hard. Like getting from Earth orbit to the Mars, to Mars, I would imagine, is easy as long as you're patient. It's doing it in a reasonable amount of time. Right, right. You know, because you want to keep accelerating uh, if you... You know, if you put humans go, trying to go to Mars, you don't want to just get out of Earth orbit and float over to Mars at, you know, whatever speed you leave Earth orbit. Chances are you probably want to accelerate and get there a little faster. And of course, because our orbits are in different, have different periods, there are times when the Earth is close to Mars mm-hmm. and there are times when the Earth is very, very, very far away from it. And both planets are moving. You want to make sure and- this is appropriately up. Yeah, you want to make sure you use because you're because even before the lock or the rocket lifts off. I mean, this is all elementary stuff. Stuff I'm sure most of our listeners, but you know, with, while your rocket's on the launch pad, you still have the velocity of the Earth. The Earth right there. Yep. So if you just get out of the Earth's gravitational well, get out of Earth's orbit, at that point, with nothing else, you're now moving at the speed of the Earth, as and I now under- you just need to point yourself towards Mars. As I understand it, the uh- that's the reason that uh, launches, uh, orbital launches, head to the east because they are taking advantage of the yes. Earth's rotational Spin. speed. Yeah, that's that's actually a whole different yep. type of thing. Yeah, because you're so it's actually easier to launch from the equator than it is to launch, you know, further right. north or south. Right. Which is one of the reasons that we launch from Florida because um, it's a little closer. Uh, and yeah, there's, uh, and some sci-fi books, they actually put, you know, future lo- uh, space stations right on the equator. Well, and I'm, if I understand correctly, uh, I think that Musk has floating launch pads. I mean, he's got, he's obviously got floating retrieval pads right now, Yes, but um, I think he's got floating yeah. launch sites in his sites, so to speak. And yeah, the obvious choice then would be to put that directly on the equator somewhere and and take off from there. Get every get every little bit of uh, of uh, momentum you can out of it. Right. Yeah. The um, I think his the, they've launched from the sea, but I think it's the smaller rockets. Like I don't think it's those big ones, like the Falcon Heavy. They've launched from an island. Really, I, I could have sworn they've launched think the original. They've launched from a floating thing. I could be wrong, but yeah, man, I might be wrong. Uh, I, I thought the small ones, like the you know the Falcon sure. Heavy, is made up of a bunch of Falcon rockets. And right. So is the Falcon Nine is made up of nine of those. And I think they've launched the individual ones to, for small satellites from platforms. I yeah. think could be. So, but that's definitely in the future. Or yeah. if you go with what they show in For All Mankind, the TV series, actually launching from under the water. Which, which apparently is... weirds me out because the first mile gets even harder. <laughs> it's, well, I don't know. It apparently, I don't know. It, it seems I, I did research it at one point, but I can't remember. There are, are, there are some interesting things that happen when you launch from just under the surface. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, lots of, uh, lots of traveling going on. I'm looking forward to seeing whatever, uh, what comes next now that we've got our two billionaires in space and back, what's the next major milestone going to be? Yep. So, um, to switch topics a little bit, yeah, there has been misinformation. I wish it weren't a word that we all know too well. Mm. (laughs) I really do. Um, But you've got something here about Facebook super spreaders that I thought was really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, super spreaders of, and of course it's of misinformation because but the misinformation is about, you know, COVID-19 and the vaccine. Right. And um, that's been in the news a lot. And it's, uh, you know, how much is Facebook responsible for that? And how's that actually happening? A, some research that was done, actually, they tried to trace back all of the 
uh, pieces of misinformation. Like, okay, if somebody posted this, but they're just reposting it, where did it originally come from? Right. And then, you know, you have to keep going back and back and back and who originally posted this. And depending upon the article you read, it's either like 12 or 20 actual individuals. Which I find fascinating that mm -hmm. that small a number can have that outsized of an impact. Yeah, I know. And some of them, you know, one of, one of them was a somewhat famous name, you know, which who I'm sure has millions of followers. Uh, other, all, the, all of them had some amount of, you know, followers that were decent. So you mm -hmm. can see it as the as springboard for this misinformation. But of course, the, you know, since we talk about science and technology here, you know, uh, it, it's having stuff that, you know, about especially the vaccine misinformation is it's troublesome because, it, you know, if we were talking about a computer thing, if we were talking about somebody saying that iPhones are no good because, you know, Apple, uh, Apple sucks at customer support or something. And then I could say, oh, I don't think you're right. But um, what's the consequence there that you get an Android phone because you heard that, you know, uh, it's just a it's a consumer decision kind of thing. You know, what's the what's the big harm? Right. But here, when you're talking about misinformation about something like a life saving vaccine and somebody acts on that information and decides not to get the vaccine then you've got uh, situations where people die. Right. <laughs> it's yep. basically what it comes down to. And not only that, what makes it so much worse is since this is a communicable disease, you end up in situations where uh, maybe that person that believe that misinformation doesn't die, but they actually end up spreading that disease to other people that do die. Right. So that makes it worse. It's not like, well, my okay, I believe something I shouldn't have believed and now I'm paying the price. It's, I believe something I shouldn't have believed and now other people are paying the price because of my mistake. That's not something you get when you decide not to buy an iPhone or not to upgrade to Windows 11 or you know something like that. It's a different, it's at a different level. There's a small sliver of, I don't even want to call it hope, but that argument has at least, the color of that argument has changed somewhat because by and large, the people that choose to be vaccinated um, aren't getting as sick and aren't dying necessarily at the same rate as those who choose to remain unvaccinated are. What that means is then that the people who choose to remain unvaccinated are essentially harming themselves the most by far, or their, their peer group the most. Um, it's not like for a while before we even had the vaccine or before the vaccine was widespread, uh, you know, you could easily encounter people who hadn't had the vaccine yet, but who intended to um, mm -hmm. and infect them and they could get sick and some of them, some percentage of them would die. Um, and of course, it's about a lot more than just dying, the whole concept of long COVID and some of the long, longer lasting effects for even those people that survive it. Um, uh, you know, are, are still at play. The, the interesting argument here that, that I keep hearing is what is social medias? And by social media, I mean, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram yeah, and yeah. whatever. What's their role? What's their responsibility? Yeah. And we hear it from both sides. Uh, honestly, if people truly believe in free speech, then Facebook has every right to not publish what it doesn't want to publish. No matter how obscure or how uh, one-sided their decisions might be, they have that right. Um, well, the problem is, is how do they not publish something? So let's say, let's say Facebook says, you know, Mark Zuckerberg sits everybody down and says, that's it. No more, uh, you know, vaccine misinformation. And then the employees would say, well, but how you want us to read what every single person posts all day long so we can you know, strike the stuff down before anybody else reads it? Does everything have to go into a moderation queue and then you wait? You know, what's the what mechanism can they use based right. on the huge volume? Right. Yeah. And that's 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 a hard problem. Everybody keeps hoping for A.I., 
Yeah. Um, you know, letting the computers <laughs> do it. But as you and I and many, many people have experienced on other platforms like YouTube and um, TikTok, um, AI is notoriously inaccurate right now. Yeah. Um, it will take down the wrong thing and it will let slide the wrong thing. Uh, right. So it really does come back to human moderation. Uh, the uh, So there's a, a number of, of different things at play here that make this a very, very difficult problem to solve. One is when we say disinformation, what do we mean? What does that even mean, right? Mm. Uh, you know, people, obviously, as soon as you say, here are the rules, here's what is and is not disinformation, you know that the bad actors are going to be dancing on the line, right? Right between. Um, they're going to use everything to infer misinformation without actually stating misinformation, uh, which is going to be hard enough for people to judge and not just you know, the, the desired AI judge of things. Uh, and as you say, how, how do you moderate? Because that's effectively what you're doing. How do you moderate the millions and millions and millions of pieces of content that are getting generated every day? Yeah, I did think of one interesting idea. Uh, you know, if, if this was a problem I had to solve, um, if you limited the number of people that you could follow and that could follow you on Facebook, the problem seems to become solvable. Now, there are already limits. Um, I think, uh, I don't know what it is, but as just a regular person, there's a limit the number, to the number of people that can follow you. I, I think it's like 5,000. 5,000 5, yeah. is what I recall. Unless it's changed. But if you limited it further and said that there were, you could only follow 150 people and that only 150 people could follow you. Now that changes the very nature of Facebook, mm -hmm. but maybe in a positive way. I mean, you would actually have to make decisions right. about like who you wanted to follow. And it also solves another big problem for Facebook is when you follow like a thousand or 5,000 people, um, it makes decisions about what you see when you log into Facebook. And it may be at 150 people, it doesn't have to make that decision anymore. It just shows you everything. Uh, so you're kind of making that decision. And you could actually temper it with like, if I, if say I wanted to reach out to somebody, an old high school friend and say, can I be your friend? Um, we could still be friends, but I'm not following you. You don't count as my 150 people. In other words, I don't have to get approval again to add you to my following list. The approval is already there. You're just not currently one of the 150 people I'm following. So your list of, of people that you can follow can be big, but your list of people that you are actually seeing things from can be small. Now, when you do that, if somebody wanted to spread misinformation, instead of having a million followers, they would just have, say, 150 followers. And it would still spread. They could send it out. Out of the 150 people, 20 of them could repost it. That could go to, you know, a couple hundred people, which could then go to a couple thousand people, but it does leave an interesting trail. Like you would notice that if somebody actually posted something, doesn't matter what it is. And then that thing got reposted and reposted and reposted. And the original thing multiplied, it could actually appear on somebody's screen at Facebook as, Oh, a piece of information has multiplied. It went from one post to 400. And at that point, we're going to take a look at it to make sure it's not something that should be there. They could, they could put that kind of a threshold on things right now, right? If a post appears, you know, more than a thousand times, regardless well, of, regardless of the relationships involved, then, you know, or maybe more than 10,000 times, then yeah. somebody ought to look at it first. Uh, the, uh, uh, I'm just not sure that that really solves the, the underlying problem. For the record, another solution would be to limit the number of posts you can make in a day. Yeah, well, that, that, um, that too would reduce the um, um, the amount of thoughtless sharing that goes on. Because I think that that's part of the problem, right? It's very easy to just click that share button, click OK, and you're done. You've made a statement. You've taken an action. But if, in fact, you can only share or post, say, 10 things a day, you're going to think twice, right? Right. I guess you could, if you could moderate the people that have a big reach, Mm -hmm. So if you actually have more than 5,000 people following you, because you're, you're not just a regular person anymore, mm -hmm. then you post something that gets a closer look than say just a normal person posting something that has a hundred people following them. I, um, I'm not sure then, it actually has to be based on who's posting. I think that, 
um, if you just set you know some threshold, I'll say it's five thousand impressions, but it's probably has yeah. to be a much well, larger number. Well, that's what number. I'm saying. Set, yeah. But it has nothing to do with who posted it or where it came from. It's just that here's a post. It's been viewed by ten thousand people. Mm. Time to take a closer look. Yeah, and you could also just limit sharing. I mean, I seem to have no problem actually using Facebook. Not that I use it much, but only posting things that I actually type, <laughs> like. <laughs> The, you know, here's something that happened to me today or something right. like that. Like it doesn't, I don't go and say, here's a news article. There was actually an XKCD comic about this uh, a couple of weeks ago about, you know, somebody, I think the comic was something off the link to it, but somebody from the future uh, or somebody from the, from the current day going to the past and saying, well, what's changed? And it's like, well, there are laws now against using lasers on airplanes um, and, you know, a few other things. And one of the things was, and it's a little easier to share news stories with other people. And then it says, guess which one of these things is the big problem. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's not the lasers and planes thing. Nope. It's not the lasers and planes. <laughs> yeah. And it is like, that's all it is, is news stories are a little bit easier to share. Uh Oh, we broke society. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Cause I think limiting followers, it's funny. So to drop back a little bit, I've often thought that, the common complaint is that the algorithm is the problem, right? The, the, be it Twitter or Facebook or whatever, them somehow choosing what you think you might, what they think you might want to see is the problem. I think the problem is more fundamental than the algorithm actually has nothing to do with it. We pick who we follow. We pick who we want to, um, uh, whose information we want to see. And that means that we are responsible for enforcing or self-enforcing our own bubble. Um, you know, if I, you know, if, if I feel, you know, a certain way about an issue, I'm going to follow people that face that feel that same way. The algorithm had nothing to do with it. I'm only going to get self-reinforcing posts from other people that feel the same way I do. Mm -hmm. um, if anything, um, I'd love to see the algorithm change to occasionally inject to the opposite viewpoint. As long as it's an opposite viewpoint, not opposite, not uh, false information. False yep. That's that's the hard part. That's, it is. It is. And it and it's actually you know it's that shouldn't be debatable. But you know, so many times now we have information that's wrong, but being displayed under the banner of this is just my opinion and alternate and, facts. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can have alternate opinions. You can't have alternate facts. Yes. Yep. So so anyway, this is a problem that I think you and I are not going to be able to solve right now. Not this week. Damn it. All right. Well, we'll <laughs> think of it during the next two weeks while we're off and we'll okay. have a solution for everybody. There's your homework. When we get back. Solve social media in three weeks. Yeah. You got it. So um, to move yeah. on to some things that are perhaps a little bit more cool, a bit more. Yes. Uh, I definitely have fun. something I want to talk about. Yeah. Um, the um, This is one I've been holding on to for a couple of weeks just because uh, I just found it incredibly interesting. It's a uh, sergeantpepperphotos.wordpress.com. The, the URL, of course, will be in the show notes. For anyone of a certain age, I'm sure you're very familiar with the iconic album cover to Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles. And for all of those of you who are asking who's that, uh, just Google Hi. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Everybody but, knows the Beatles. Everybody knows the Beatles. Uh, you'd be actually, I think you'd be surprised. Oh. Um, anyway, so the the I, the album is an is just an iconic mix of lots of different people, lots of different things on the album cover. This site actually goes through and attempts to locate the source images used for everything on that album cover, and it's fascinating. It is just incredible where all these little pieces of stuff came from uh, to, they either came directly, so it's literally something that was just, well, at that time, probably literally cut and pasted onto a piece of cardboard to make the album. But some were modified slightly, some were stylized, but you can see where all of these different random images and, and, and iconic figures came from. Like I said, it's absolutely fascinating. I also wanted to throw a quick hat tip out to uh, Research Buzz from our friend Tara, uh, Tara Kalashane, who, uh, who uncovered this a while back. She's got a great, uh, a great feed of just all sorts of random and useful things that she finds on the internet every day. Cool. So, yep. So like I said, I've, link in the show notes. That one's, that one's a, a long one that uh, um, uh, is too difficult to pronounce. 
So I read two books while I was traveling and um, I loved both books, but after reading them, I only love one. <laughs> um, <laughs> the first, okay, so the both books are about survival. I like survival stories. I like true survival stories. You know, uh, just great stuff about people in extreme situations uh, surviving. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I read one that was on my list that's supposed to be one of the best in the genre called The Long Walk. And I believe it was made into a movie, a movie I haven't seen called The Way Home. Um, and it is about a, a guy and some other people who escape a Soviet prisoner uh, labor camp uh, in northern Siberia in like 1940 and spend more than a year walking from northern Siberia across, you know, Siberia, across Mongolia, across the Gobi Desert and Tibet, all the way to India to freedom. Wow. And it's an as I'm reading it, I loved it. Uh, about maybe a quarter of the way through, I remarked to myself, I remember vividly saying, this story is so amazing. I have a hard time believing it's true. <laughs> and I remember thinking exactly that. By the end of the book, a few more things that happened for me to say, yeah, and now I really have a hard time believing this is true. So when I was done, I said, this is a great book. This is true. This is one of my favorite books of all time. And then I started researching it and find out that it's not true. It's, <laughs> it's still sold. It's still put out there as a true story. But uh, in fact, so many other people thought the same way I did that there's been a lot of people have looked into it and have found that the historical record shows very different things. Uh, about the individual that supposedly wrote the book or, you know, was ghostwritten by somebody, you know, so he told the story. Mm -hmm. um, then there's the fact that there are several other men that were on this journey, uh, including an American. Uh, most of the most of the people on the journey were Poles. And but yet none of those other people seem to exist or have been heard from, despite the fact that, you know, this was a popular book and movie and right. all of that, or right. their families haven't come out of the woodwork. Other people have come out and said, that's a great story some of that happened to me. Like that's that part of the story happened to me and I've been telling people and now suddenly it's part of this book. Uh, other researchers have looked into things and found out that the primary character actually has a record of being in other places during when the story was happening. All sorts of things pointing to the fact that it's probably a yarn that was created over many decades by the, the person based somewhat on some experiences that they had and uh, perhaps other things they've heard. And the whole thing was very disappointing. So it, it really, if maybe if I only enjoyed the book so much and I found out it wasn't true, I'd still say, ah, it was still fun. But because I enjoyed it so much based on the fact that it was true, I find like I turned on the book and I'm like, no, no. As a matter of <laughs> fact, if, if they had actually said that this was a book, a, 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 you know, a, a book based on things that had happened to many different people you know, put together into a single story. Sure. I probably still would have read it. And I, and now I would be saying how I loved it. Right. Then I followed it up because I, I, I plan on then going and reading some fiction after that, but I was so disappointed in finding out this wasn't true that I immediately went to another book on my survival uh, stories list. And this is a much more recent one. And this is definitely true. It's called 438 days. And it's the true story about how a fisherman, uh, from Mexico, uh, was out fishing and the boat got swept out uh, off the coast into the Pacific ocean. And he survived 438 days, completely adrift in a boat that was really nothing, but just a, the bottom of a boat with a cooler and maybe a couple simple things like a club and, you know, a few a part, uh, an engine that didn't work. <laughs> um, and it's an amazing story of survival. Um, that basically isn't written by the person. It's written by, uh, you know, a journalist who, uh, you know, convinced the person to tell him the story and, and over the course of a year, got all the details out and organized them and then corroborated the facts, even to the point where since, you know, this guy didn't know where he was, he drifted all the way from the coast of Mexico, all the way to the Marshall Islands. Mm -hmm. And so all the way across the Pacific and no sail, Nothing. I mean, it was a pretty flat boat, so the currents weren't carrying him. Matter of fact, uh, for a while, he basically was stationary by the equator. Um, and what they did is they actually recreated the journey using all the marine and ocean records 
and information about the weight of the boat and things like that uh, to actually figure out in retrospect his entire journey that landed him in the exact spot that he was so that they, as they could tell the story, they could figure out exactly where he was at different points. And he survived basically because his survival instinct was so strong. I mean, he ate raw fish and birds because there was no way to cook them, had to catch them with his hands. Um, he came up with all sorts of ingenious ways to stay alive and, and uh, you know, just get through the entire ordeal. And then the, the thing I like about the book, too, is it doesn't stop when he's fi finally, you know, goes aground on an island. Mm -hmm. uh, it can that's only about like 80% of the book. The last 20% is what happens afterwards, which is great because these books sometimes leave you wondering that. Right. So this tells a lot about the trouble he had when he was first found in the mental state he was in and imagine, the long yeah. journey to recovering from that. It took him years and he's still not, he'll, ne he'll never be fully recovered hmm. from, from it. So anyway, that book I couldn't put down and I could not get through it fast enough because it was so uh, brilliant just trying to um you know hear this entire story 438 days cool sounds yeah. like a good one yeah so speaking of lying or not yeah uh one of the things that happened while we were out of course is that microsoft announced windows 11 mm -hmm. or it may have been just before our last episode i don't remember now and the question that came up right away is but, but, but you said Windows 10 was going to be the last version of Windows. Mm. And my question is, the thing that I delve into in this article is, was Microsoft lying? Uh, naturally, <laughs> the Microsoft haters will come out in droves, and I get that. But I at least provide my thoughts as to what really happened, where the statement came from, uh, where Microsoft dropped the ball, and uh, how we ended up with Windows 11. So that's gonna be at askleo.com slash 134705. Did Microsoft lie? Cool, and I'll link to a video that's uh, from Monday this week that's done really well, how to fix 10 Mac Finder annoyances. Cool. Hmm? I think we've wrapped it up for another week. Yeah. So reminder then that we will be off for two weeks. Yep. And hopefully we'll be back uh, three weeks from today, uh, figuring out what it was that happened in the preceding three <laughs> yeah. weeks and talking about it. The show notes for this week are tehpodcast.com slash teh138. If you've got a comment or a question, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the TEH podcast. Or as always, you can leave a comment on the show notes page. As always, thanks for listening. We appreciate your being here and we will see you here again in a couple of weeks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.